for the second of our mini post-Easter series. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. As the disciples were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit is not of flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Amen, and may God bless to us that reading from his word. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we believe that you speak to us through your word. Help us to hear what you are saying to us. And help us respond in faith and obedience. For Jesus' sake. Amen. How a book ends matters a great deal. The opening has to be good enough to grip your attention. The middle has to be sufficiently interesting to keep you reading. But the end has to tie everything together and provide a satisfying conclusion. As Luke draws his gospel to a close... What are the themes he brings to our attention? In these closing verses, which we've just read, I should like to highlight three things. First of all, in verses 36 to 43, the focus is on resurrection. Then in verses 44 to 47, the focus is on revelation. And in verses 48 to 53, 
it's on ascension. Resurrection, revelation, and ascension. First of all, then, in verses 36 to 43, the focus is on resurrection. What Luke tells us in these verses builds, of course, on what he has told us in the earlier part of the chapter. He's told us how the women who went to anoint Jesus' body early in the morning on the first day of the week, that is, two days after the crucifixion, found the tomb empty. The body was gone, and the stone which had covered the entrance was rolled away. When they reported this to the disciples, Peter went to the tomb to see for himself, and he found that what the women said was true. Then in verses 13 to 35, Luke tells us about a couple of disciples who were walking from Jerusalem to the Judean village of Emmaus. As they walked and talked, they were joined by a stranger who proceeded to explain to them from the Old Testament scriptures the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. It was only when they were having supper together that they recognized who the stranger was. As he broke bread and gave it to them, they realized it was none other than Jesus. And so they immediately returned to Jerusalem to inform the disciples of this amazing encounter. The passage we're looking at today begins with the disciples and their friends talking excitedly about all that has happened. Verse 36 says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. On this occasion, it wasn't just a couple of disciples who saw Jesus. It was a whole company of people. There's something very authentic, I think, about the narrative here. Look how the disciples and their friends reacted. Verse 37. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Jesus had to challenge them in verse 38. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? And he had to assure them that he was no disembodied spirit by encouraging them to touch his hands and his feet. I suspect a fictitious account written to convince people that a man had come back from the dead would have described people's reaction in terms of wonder, amazement and excitement. Here, the reaction is one of shock, fear, disbelief. And yet there's something profoundly realistic about that. The disciples think Jesus is a ghost. They sense they're in the presence of the supernatural. They're confronted with something they can't wrap their minds around, something they can't explain. That's profoundly disturbing. However much they might want Jesus to be alive, they can't take it in. No wonder they're startled and afraid. They need reassurance. They need peace in their hearts. 
even, it, even when it begins to dawn on them that it really is Jesus who's present with them, that he really has come back from the dead, they still can't quite take it in. As, as verse 41 points out, they still disbelieve. Not now out of fear, but rather out of joy and amazement. Now it's all too good to be true. The focus of these verses is on the fact that Jesus, the risen Jesus, has a real physical body. He has flesh and bones. He can be touched. He can be pressed and prodded. Jesus even asks for something to eat in verse 41. And he proceeds to eat a piece of broiled fish in their presence. Jesus wants to demonstrate his physicality. He's no apparition. He is a real body, a physical body, a body with substance. Why do you think that's important? After all, in the words of the old song, John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Wouldn't it have been enough for Jesus' soul to go marching on? For his followers to have been inspired by his life and example? Well, some people are prepared to settle for that. A number of years ago, the then Bishop of Durham dismissed the notion of a physical resurrection. He described it in terms of a conjuring trick with bones. But that's not what the Bible says. The consistent witness of the Bible is that Jesus' resurrection was a physical resurrection. The tomb was empty. The body was gone. In verse 12, Luke tells us that the linen cloths which had bound Jesus' body were still there. But the body they had encased wasn't. And in these verses we see that the risen Jesus has a physical presence. He is a physical body. That has two important implications for us. First, it proves that Jesus' death has indeed secured all that it was intended to achieve. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. He died to rescue us from death. Death physical, spiritual and eternal. If his body remained in the grave, what possible confidence could we have that sin's penalty has indeed been paid? How could we be sure that there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How could we know that Jesus has conquered death and all its powers? Only a physical resurrection guarantees these things. The Apostle Paul makes that point very clearly in chapter 15 of his letter to the Christians in Corinth. In the context of physical resurrection, he writes, if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The Apostle Paul didn't think that a physical resurrection was an optional extra. It was integral to the gospel. And it's important for us because it assures us that sin and death have been defeated once and for all. The second implication of Jesus' resurrection, his physical resurrection, is that a physical resurrection awaits all those who trust in him. When we die, our bodies are buried or cremated in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. When Jesus returns, our bodies will be resurrected and we shall spend eternity with him as physical beings. No doubt our resurrection bodies will have amazing new powers and capabilities. But there will be continuity between our physical existence now and our physical existence in the new heavens and the new earth. Christianity is often accused of downplaying the body, of denigrating the body. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity holds out the prospect of a bodily resurrection. Our bodies are an integral part of who we are as men and women made in the image of God. And that will continue to be the case in the new creation. So in these verses, Luke focuses on Jesus' physical resurrection. Let me ask you, are you living in the light of that physical resurrection? Are you persuaded that Jesus rose from the dead and guarantees forgiveness and pardon for all who will turn and trust in him. Can you say by faith in the Lord Jesus, because this sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And are you looking forward to life beyond death in a resurrected body? And does that influence how you use and treat your body here and now? We need to live in the light of the resurrection. Resurrection. The second theme which Luke draws to our attention, I'd like to call revelation. After he calms the disciples down and convinces them that he really has come back to life again, Jesus begins to teach them. Look with me, please, at verses 44 to 47. Then he said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus reminds his disciples how he used to tell them that the scriptures which we now know as the Old Testament pointed forward to him. He gives them a crash course in understanding the Old Testament and helps them see how it foreshadows his life and ministry. They need to know these things. Why? Well, from the start, Judaism was a religion of revelation. It was a word-based religion. The God of the Jews was a God who spoke. A God who revealed himself to his people through the spoken and written word. The Jews didn't worship idols. In fact, they were commanded not to make anything that smacked of an idol. They worshipped a God who was unseen. Now at times that must have been a problem for them. I think that's highlighted perhaps most clearly in Psalm 115 where the psalmist writes, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but don't speak. Eyes, but don't see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. The idols of the nations were all too visible. But as the psalmist says here, they were powerless. Israel's God may have been unseen, but he communicated with his people. Throughout the Old Testament period, he progressively revealed to them more and more about himself and his purposes. At the heart of that revelation was how sinful people could approach a holy God and be made right with him. The sacrificial system, which was an integral part of the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, to which Jesus refers here, showed how the penalty for sin was death and how forgiveness could be obtained only if a substitute died Instead, the need for redemption was highlighted in the law of Moses. The God inspired songs of the Old Testament, the Psalms, celebrated the rule of God appointed kings, but they anticipated more than even the greatest of these kings could ever achieve. The prophets spoke God's truth into the circumstances of their times. And they too looked forward to the coming of a king who would set up an everlasting kingdom. They also spoke about a suffering servant who in facing rejection and death would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. 
Jesus could apply all these things to himself. His life and ministry were the fulfillment of all that was taught in the Old Testament scriptures. It was important for the disciples to understand Jesus' identity and work in the light of the scriptures they held so dear. They needed to see that Jesus was the suffering servant, the promised Messiah, the king whose kingdom would last forever, the one whose death would fully and finally atone for sin and secure forgiveness for all who would put their trust in him. Jesus was the climax and fulfillment of God's master plan, a plan that was conceived in eternity past and progressively revealed over many hundreds of years. He was the goal of revelation. It would strengthen the disciples' faith to see that the primary focus of Scripture was Jesus. They bore witness to him. Not only that, it was important for the disciples to recognize the ongoing importance of written revelation in the outworking of God's purposes. For Christianity too is word-focused. It's interesting that when Jesus' glory was briefly revealed at the transfiguration, the voice from heaven didn't say, This is my son, my chosen one. Look at him. No. What the voice said was, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. John tells us in his gospel how after the resurrection, the disciple Thomas was reluctant to accept that Jesus was alive. He wanted to see Jesus for himself. When he did so, Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Like Judaism, Christianity is bound up with the written and spoken word. The scriptures of the Old Testament were supplemented by the books we now call the New Testament. As Christians, we believe God speaks to us through his word, that what scripture says, God says. It's there we meet with Jesus. That's why we read the Bible and interact with it. It's not that we worship a book. We worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's through the revelation he has given to us in the Bible that we get to know him. And his word is one of the principal means he uses to channel his grace into our lives. The disciples needed to root Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in Scripture. And we need to see too that it's through scripture that we learn who Jesus is. Revelation. It's important. It's vital. In the light of that, how much do you value the Bible? How much do you live in the good of it? Resurrection. Revelation, 
Finally, in verses 48 to 53, we have ascension. Luke tells us that Jesus led the disciples out as far as Bethany. And as he blessed them with uplifted hands, he was carried up into heaven. Jesus went back up to where he had come from. In the parallel account in Matthew's Gospel, we're told that Jesus assured the disciples that he had all power in heaven and on earth. You see, Jesus ascended up to the right hand of the Father. And as the Apostle Paul tells the Christians in Philippi, because he suffered death, because he humbled himself to death, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus ascended back to where he was before, and now he exercises universal authority, having completed the work of salvation. As you probably know, the Gospel of Luke is the first part of a two-part work. The book of the Acts of the Apostles is the continuation of the story. In the opening verses of Acts, Luke says something very interesting. He writes, In the first book, that is in the Gospel, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Luke says his gospel was all about what Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do. And that's the perspective from which Luke writes the book of Acts. Jesus tells the apostles in verse 48 of our passage, you are witnesses of these things. They'd seen Jesus, they'd been with him, they'd heard his teaching They'd seen his miracles. They were ideally placed to tell others the good news about him. But they were not to begin the task immediately. Verse 49, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The disciples were to stay in Jerusalem until they received the gift of the Holy Spirit promised by God the Father. The giving of the Spirit was dependent on Jesus completing the work the Father had entrusted to him. Now that he had done that, Jesus was about to send the promised Spirit on his disciples. But he had to return to heaven first. He had to return to heaven before the Spirit could come. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down in power on the apostles and the fledgling church, Then the apostles were empowered to begin proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins to people everywhere. They preached in Jesus' name by the power of his Spirit. And so Jesus was continuing his work through them. As the ministry of the Holy Spirit impacted the lives of more and more people, 
through the witness of the apostles, the effectiveness of Jesus' ministry was multiplied. As Luke ends his gospel, the Pentecost has not yet arrived, but the disciples and their friends have great joy in their hearts. They're full of gratitude to God. They are convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. They've been given fresh insights into Scripture. They're now convinced as to who Jesus is and why he came. And so they worship him. And they look forward expectantly to launching the mission of the church because they now know that the mission of the church is underwritten by the sovereignty of King Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Do we take on board that we serve one who is not only risen but ascended one who has universal power. There was a professor in New College in Edinburgh in the middle years of the 19th century. He was an eccentric. There was, there's no other word for it. And he was known for some of his quaint sayings. One of the sayings that uh, have come down to us is this. The dust of the earth is seated on the throne of the universe. The dust of the earth is seated on the throne of the universe. The point John Duncan was making is that in heaven... The ascended Jesus still has a human body. He's in the position of supreme power, but he has taken our humanity and raised it to the heights of God's throne. Isn't that incredible? Jesus is risen, ascended, glorified. Resurrection, revelation, ascension. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The scriptures reveal him to us. And he is now seated on the throne of the universe, guaranteeing the success of his church in her mission to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to you, to me, to people everywhere. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the certainties of the Gospel. Thank you that Jesus is risen. Thank you that he has paid the penalty for sin. Thank you that he is ascended. And we can have confidence as we pray to you that your purposes will be worked out in our world. 
Help us to take these things on board and to live in the good of them. For Jesus' sake. Amen.